Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. Good morning, everyone. It is June 9th, and we have a lovely weather here this morning. It's 78 degrees, but it's overcast, and you can walk around outside and uh, not sweat. That's the big thing. Humidity's down. It's just pretty. It's nice. So we are continuing on in our reading of First Chronicles 12, Psalm 133, 106, John 19. So keep those in mind. Um, it's a bunch. So I'm not going to spend too much time on the um, This Day Trivia. This Day in Trivia on June 9th, 1928. This one I found I really liked. Charles Kingford Smith and his four-man crew are the first to perform or finish a trans-Pacific flight. They flew... They left Oakland, California on May 31st and arrived in Australia on this day on June 9th. Not non, obviously, it couldn't be nonstop, but uh, <clears throat> I don't know which road that route they take, but they made it. So the first transatlantic flight and uh, Pepsi syringe hoax, a, a hypodermic needle is found in a Pepsi can in Tacoma, Washington, prompting hundreds of of reported similar incidents, all of which turned out to be hoaxes in 1993. 25-year-old Pennsylvania man was sentenced to a year in prison after he became the first person charged with the hoax. First U.S. ballistic submarine. 1959, George Washington is launched, made the first test strike. Later that year, using a Polaris missile, and uh, to strike a target 1,100 miles away. that All that could do that in 1959, that blows me away. And our favorite of the day, June 9th, 1943, infamous in our history of the United States, income tax withholding law is signed by U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt requiring employees to collect taxes from their employees. <laughs> oh, fun, fun. Okay, let's look at a couple of dad jokes. I don't think I did these yesterday. Um, I named my dog Five Miles so that I could frequently say, I'm going to walk five miles now. (laughs) That would work for me. That would probably be the only way I'd do it. Um, What group of people never get angry? Nomads. Let's turn over now into or onto our reading for today and get our hearts ready so we can get into the Word of God. So, Father, thank you for our time that we get to spend together. Please guide us and direct us. Show us these truths, Father, both in the Old Testament and New Testament so we can see where you want to bring us in our lives and what you want to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. I do have my friends next door with their uh, (laughs) jackhammers going away at the walls. I don't know if you can hear them or not. They're little jackhammers, but they're just annoying. They're like a a constant bee that's buzzing around your ear. They just go all day long. So I must have prayed for patience or something. First Chronicles 12, 
Now, these are the ones who came to David at Ziglag while he was still restricted because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were equipped with bows, using both the right hand and the left to sling stones and to shoot arrows from the bow. They were Saul's kinsmen from Benjamin. The chief was Ahaziah, then Joash, the son of Shammah, the Gileathite, and Jaziel, the Pelite, the son of Asmaveth, and Barakah, and Jehu, the Anathathite, Ishmaiah, the Gibeonite, a mighty man among the thirty, and over the thirty. Then Jeremiah, Jazaziel, Joanna, Hosabad, the Gederathite, and Aluzai, Jermoth, Belaliah, Shemariah, the (laughs) Shephathiah, I'm doing bad today, the Hurafite, Elkanah, the Eshua, Elkanah, Eshua, um, Azarel, Joser, Jeshobem, and the Korathite, and Jola, and Zebadiah, the sons of Joram, of Gedor. From the Gadites there came others to David in the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for war, who could handle shield and spear, and whose faces were like the faces of lions, and they were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. Ezra was the first, Obadiah the second, Eliab the third, Mishmaana the fourth, Jeremiah, Jeremiah the fifth, Atai the sixth, Eliel the seventh, Johanan the eighth, Zabad the ninth, Jeremiah the tenth, Mikbani the eleventh. These of the sons of Gad were captains of the armies. He who was least was equal to the hundred of the greatest to the thousands, or to a thousand. These are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks, and they put to flight all those in the valleys, both to the east and to the west. Then some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold of David. David went out to meet them and said to them, If you come peacefully to me to help me, my heart shall be united with you. But if you betray me to my adversaries, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look on it and decide. Then the spirit came upon Amasi, who was the chief of the thirty, and he said, We are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace be to you, and peace to him who helps you. Indeed, your God helps you. Then David received them and made them captives of the band. From Manasseh also some defected David when he was about to go to battle with the Philistines against Saul. But they did not help them, for the Lord of the Philistines, after the consultation, sent him away 
saying, At the cost of our heads he may defect to his master Saul. As he went to Ziglag, there defected to him from Manasseh, Adna, Josabad, uh, Jediael, Michael, Josabad, Elihu, Zeliathai, captains of the thousands who belonged to Manasseh. They helped David against the bands of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor. They were captains in the army. For day by day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army, like the army of God. Verse 23. Now these are the numbers of the divisions equipped for war who came to David at Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul to him. According to the word of the Lord, the sons of Judah who bore shield and spear were 6,800 equipped for war. 25 of the sons of Simeon, mighty men of valor of war, 7,100. Of the sons of Levi, 4,600. Of Jehoiada was the leader of the house of Aaron, and with him 3,700. Also Zadok, the young man, mighty of valor, and of his father's household, 22 captains. Of the sons of Benjamin, Saul's kinsmen, 3,000. For until now the greatest part of them had kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800 men of valor, famous men in their father's household. All of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by name to come to make David king. And the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with the knowledge of what Israel should do. And their chiefs were 200, and all their kinsmen were at their command. And Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out in the army who could draw up in battle formation all kinds of weapons of war and help David with his undivided heart. Of Nephtali, there were 1,000 captains, and with them 37,000 with a shield and spear. And of the Danites who could draw up in battle formation, there were 28,600. Of Asher, there were 40,000 who went out in the army to draw up in battle formation. From the other side of the Jordan, the Reubenites and the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, there are 120,000 with all kinds of weapons of war for battle. All these being men of war who could draw up in battle formation came to Hebron with a perfect heart to make David king of Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of one mind to make David king. They were there with David three days eating and drinking for their kinsmen had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near to them, even as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, brought food on the donkeys, camels, mules, and on oxen in great quantities of flour, cakes, fig cakes, and bunches of raisins, wine, oxen, and sheep. There was joy indeed in Israel. Well, we did kind of catch up, huh? We went from Ziglag back to Hebron. We've been looking at David being anointed as king in Hebron. And we're even pretty much there in First Samuel, what we were um, looking at last night. We just jumped. We're a little further ahead, I want to tonight. But um, this is the great gathering in uh, of the people to David. And I, I was mentioning last night that this is the kingdom of David as it grows was very reflective of really 
the king, uh, the kingdom of Christ. Jesus's ministry parallels, I should say, really David's ministry parallels Jesus, but um, it some it was something that grew very slowly. There was the kingdom of Israel established, really focused more on political power than spiritual obedience to God. We see the Pharisees and the chief priests and all these people, and they were against David. They should have known that David was God's anointed by the scriptures, and and certainly John the Baptist proclaimed it. All the people were proclaiming it when he began his ministry, but the chief priests and the Pharisees, nobody wanted to acknowledge it. So they rejected it, and they fought against it, and they tried to kill Jesus, just as Saul, who was supposed to represent God, supposed to have a godly kingdom. It became a political kingdom, and it all became about him holding on to power. And when, once he knew David was the anointed one of Israel, he tried to kill him. But slowly, little by little, people started coming over to David because they realized, wait a minute, it's not about the political power. It's not about who looks religious and who claims to have power. It's about who is anointed. And they could see that David was anointed, and so they slowly started coming over to him. And this is how the kingdom of God has been increasing, that people are little by little acknowledging, realizing that Jesus is the anointed one. And so his kingdom is ever growing and ever being established. So it's fun to see the parallels there. And, of course, David establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem and reigns from there, and it becomes established forever. And that's exactly what happens with Jesus. He is, his kingdom is growing when he comes back. Um, his kingdom is forever because he comes out of the line of David, but also because he's Messiah, it's going to reign for eternity, and he's going to come back and establish his throne in Jerusalem. Fun parallels. Psalm 133, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of the robes. It was like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. So the dwelling of the brothers in unity is compared to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when there was a, when the high priest was anointed for service, the oil was poured upon his head and it would run down upon his beard and then down upon his clothes. And it was a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon him and covering him completely. So the fellowship of the brethren, how sweet it is, this, this sweetness of the Holy Spirit bonding, covering over all the brotherhood, the whole church. And it is it is like the dew of Hermon, this, the 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 much-needed moisture that comes supernaturally. You know, it just seems to appear overnight. Again, the dew would be covering the ground. It's coming uh, coming upon those there in Mount Zion. It was this God's covering over those that he has brought into his kingdom. And so we see a beautiful picture of the unity and the fellowship we have in the body of Christ, all by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 106 and Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord, 
or can show forth all his praise. Uh, Blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor towards your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindness. They rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up. And he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them. He redeemed them from the head of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request. He sent a wasting disease among them when they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Abiram and the fire blazed up in their company. The flame consumed the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before them to turn away the wrath from destroying them, then he despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his words, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness and that he would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds. And the plague broke out among them. Then, the, then Phineas stood up and interposed. And, also, and so the plague was stayed. And it was reckoned to him as for righteousness to all the generations forever. They also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Mirabah. So that it went hard with Moses on their account. Because they were rebellious against his spirit. He spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the people's as the Lord commanded them. But they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices. They played the harlot with their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and he abhorred the inheritance. 
then he gave them into the hand of the nations. And those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake, and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of their captors. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. We give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Phenomenal psalm, pretty long psalm, but again, recounting the history of Israel. And so they did it a very brief way. And again, going through the whole, the whole scenario of, of God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness. God delivering the people of Israel, not being grateful or realizing his goodness. And time after time, blowing it and making mistakes, yet God in his compassion reaching out and giving them another opportunity, another chance. So this would be the principal reason why this psalmist would say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, great is the Lord, because he was the God who continued to give mercy when they didn't deserve it. And he's still that way today. He's the God of mercy. And this is his nature. And so we, um, we should take hold of that. And I, I still remember today, one of, my, one of my most powerful memories in church, I've had this happen a few times, but one particular person coming to me, and I asked them if they, if they understood the message, if they wanted to give their heart to the Lord, and they said, I can't. I said, why not? They said, because you don't know what I've done. God can't forgive me. I'm too wicked. And I said, well... <laughs> you don't know God. And I said, you don't know your Bible. I said, have you committed adultery and killed somebody? Well, no. Yes, no. This particular woman was struggling with the aftermath of having an abortion early in her life. But I said, God forgave David. And he, he planned a murder. And so it was a long conversation that... Ended sadly, because she said, yes, but it's just, uh, um, God, I'm, I'm too weak. God it can't forgive a sin like mine. And I said, he does, and he, and he will. All of Israel is a whole, the whole Bible is full of God forgiving people that don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Nobody deserves it, but he does. And I asked her to think on it. She went away like the rich young ruler, sad, because she was caught in that uh, turmoil. <laughs> Hopefully she, she finally did. But this is the situation we're in. We find ourselves thinking that God can't forgive us, won't forgive us, whatever the reason, because of the things we've done. And yet every time we look in the Old Testament and the New, we see all of these people that were wicked. They did horrible things. They threw their sons and their daughters into the fire. They sacrificed them. To Molech, actually the Old Testament equivalent to abortion. 
And yet God would still appear to them and still offer his forgiveness if they would repent. Again, it's, he doesn't give it, he doesn't, he gives it freely, but he doesn't give it unconditionally. He gives the condition is you have to repent. You have to believe in him. You have to ask for it. And this is the, the greatness of our God. This is why we praise him. John 19, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when he, the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law and by the law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard these statements, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Verse 16. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus therefore. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said that he was the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garment and made four parts, a part to every soldier, also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one place. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his house, his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 31, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scriptures, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about a hundred pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So there we go with the, the, the recounting of the crucifixion again as we go through all four Gospels. We're reading this. Always a slight different angle, different information, little details. We learn about, you know, interesting things that they took Jesus' body down and it wrapped it with spices, prepared it for burial. And, of course, they used the expensive nard, the expensive perfume that, that uh, Judas was so upset about that they were using on Je- that, that Mary used on Jesus' feet. And he says, no, don't you know she's preparing me for burial? So we see the prophecy being played out as these same um, perfumes and spices are being used, the same ones that, of course, that the Magi brought, the myrrh, and when they came to visit Jesus as a baby. So we see... Everything, all the details that happen are all prophetic. They all come together. And I was uh, wondering if they had any inclination that Jesus would rise again from the dead. If they, you know, if they, if they would have used the spices, if they knew Jesus had said, oh, I'm going to rise in three days, uh, 
there wouldn't have been any, any need for the spices, would there? But yet they, they did it. So little tiny details. They were, they were followers, and they're probably doing it just as a way of worship. It could have been, even if they believed, maybe they just, just wanted to minister to him in that way. But these, all these little things, I was thinking about what it would be like for John to see his friend, his Lord, who he spent all that time with, not only hung on the cross would be horrible enough, but to be pierced in the side and watch the blood and water come out. You would think at that moment they'd go, it's all gone. It's, there's no hope. They just thrust a spear all the way up his side into his heart. This man is gone. His body is destroyed. And it's all over. And so they go into hiding, and they're thinking, what happened? We thought he was going to bring the kingdom. We thought he was going to establish the kingdom. And the, our Lord and our Savior, who we believe to be come from heaven and come from God, is gone, <laughs> is dead. How did they, how'd they uh, handle all that? I don't think they, they, weren't, they weren't able to handle it. They were just kind of shaking in their home, waiting. And then, of course, the news of the resurrection was just too shocking. Almost not be able to, to take it. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to be able to take that banging on the wall over there. I bless them. They know how to use the jackhammer, that's for sure. Um, well, we're going to continue on. There's so much there we go into, but we're short on time. So let's go into Charles Spurgeon, a trustworthy name. I will also leave in the midst of thee and afflicted and poor people. They shall trust in the name of the Lord, Zephaniah 3.12. When... True religion is ready to die out among the wealthy. It finds a home among the poor of the world, rich in faith. The Lord has even now his faithful remnant. Am I one of them? Perhaps it is because men are afflicted and poor that they learn to trust in the name of the Lord. He that hath no money must try what he can to do on trust. He whose own name is good for nothing, in his own esteem, acts wisely to rest in another name. Even the best of names, the name of Jehovah, God will always have a trusting people. And these will be an afflicted and poor people. Little as the world thinks of them, their being left in the midst of a nation is the channel of untold blessing to it. Here we have the conserving salt, which keeps in check the corruption which is in the world through lust. Again, the question comes home to each one of us. Am I one of them? Am I afflicted by the sin within me and around me? Am I poor in spirit, poor in spirituality, in my own judgment? Do I trust in the Lord? This is the main business. Jesus reveals the name, the character person of God. Am I trusting in him? If so, I am left in this world for a purpose. Lord, help me fulfill it. It's pretty beautiful. Pretty intense. Are we poor in spirit? Do we think not highly of ourselves? Do we realize that we need his, he, we need him every second? Or do we think like the high priests and the Pharisees? You know, when the poor come and pray next to us, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm righteous. I'm glad I have all my spirituality, all my, <laughs> all, all my righteousness. Well, I know we don't, but there are people that do, and we got to pray for them. There's a lot of religious hypocrisy in the world. 
Well, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for bringing us into your presence, allowing us this time that we can come before you and, uh, and enjoy time in the Word together. May you, God, continue to direct and guide us and help us to be humble in spirit, to be waiting upon you in all that we do, and to be trusting you and knowing that you are the richest, most beautiful thing we could ever possess, we could ever try to attain to, having you as our Lord and our Savior and our King. Father, to come before you and just and just revel in your goodness and in your grace. We thank you for that, and we thank you for this day. And we do praise you, as the psalmist would say. We praise you because you redeem the unredeemable. You were kind when we are unkind. You wait for us to go through our sin. And when we're ready to come out the other side and repent, you're there, and you forgive. So we thank you for all these things. And you're also the God of healing. And so we do pray that you would continue to heal our bodies. Heal us in these evil days when there's so much disease going around. There's a lot of us dealing with colds right now. And of course the colds bring fear that it might be something more severe. So we want to lift up, God, our brothers here in in church that have colds. And uh, just help us get over them, Father, and and know that they're just part of our life. But, But do heal our bodies. Keep us safe. We pray against any future viruses that might be released in, in the world. God, that you would not allow any of that to um, take place, that you would give our bodies strength, Father, and uh, resistance to any of these things. And um, thank you for the medicines that you have given us for healing. Thank you for the doctors. Thank you for the nurses. Thank you for the people in the medical profession that are so helpful, God, uh, in, even in curing cancer. We thank you for giving them so many talents and pray that you would use them in a mighty way, even going beyond the political and the financial things that people have to deal with. You just get them to the patients to help them. Juan Carlos in Mexico City, Father, we know is in great need right now, ongoing, waiting for this thing to be dealt with, with his sinus and this tumor, praying that it's not cancerous. Um, we have Flor's cousin, who's is in very serious uh, final days, it seems, with her cancer, God, that you would somehow do a miracle in her life to turn that around or just bring her father into a place of complete and utter serenity and the knowledge that she is yours, you are hers, that she is your servant, that you are the author and finisher of her faith and you have her your, her life and her eternity and her new life in your hands. And Father, we pray for Karen Skoog as well that you would continue to build her up, God, in the faith, in her inner person, that she knows, that she knows, she knows that you're in, you have her life in your inner hands, that, you, that she is safe in your hands no matter whether you decide to completely heal her up or bring the ultimate healing and give her a new body. We don't know which is your, your will yet, but Father, we pray that you'd allow her to stay, you allow her to heal now on, in this time with us so that we can see her spend quality time with her family and her friends and her church. So we just, God, pray for a miracle in her life as well, for what you're doing on Maria Elena in her life, for Steve in Virginia, Thank you for the healing that's going on with Hank. Thank you for Pastor Joe, who came by yesterday from um, uh, from Busarias, who is healed up and feeling good. 
who you, God, used the doctors to, to perform surgery and is doing so well. Father, we praise you for that. We thank you that you do the, that these things are, <laughs> are reality. We can see the answers to prayer and the people that you do heal. So we lift up all these people to you, God. We thank you. Thank you for church last night. Thank you for those that you brought and the work you're doing, growing this up, Father, in the faith and in all things godly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody, that will do it for today. So we will look forward to seeing you again tomorrow, and we will continue on with the life of David and be looking at it. Uh, last night, if you get a chance, uh, pick it up on, on Facebook. We covered a lot about the reason why David was put in place and the whole implications of David's um, kingdom being established and how that relates in the New Testament and over to Jesus. So thank you, guys. We'll see you. Um, let people know about the podcast, and we're going to keep putting them out. God bless you all. Bye-bye. Thank you.